Um, if you're visiting here today, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. I'm almost done. I, uh, but I'm going to Exodus, so don't worry. <laughs> I think I'm going to do the Pentateuch. Is that okay with you? Just, we'll just keep going because there's such wonderful lessons to learn um, of biblical history. Uh, but I really had the intent of doing 50, 49 and 50 today. But, man, I got into 49, and I haven't studied 49 like since I was in seminary at this level. Uh, if you've read 49 lately, it's the prophecies that Jacob gives of each of the sons. And some of them are very troubling. Some of them are very hard to understand. So you take a little bit of work to try to put all that together. But this is going to be the great nation. In 400 years from now, they will come out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. He'll split seas. He'll crush armies. He'll feed them from the skies. He'll bring water from rocks to take care of them. But right now, they're 70. Maybe a little more by chapter 49. But Jacob's going to die at the end of this text. But each boy, he's going to work his way down, and he's going to give what he calls a blessing. And really is a prophecy of each of the tribes what happens. Some of them are very disturbing, um, and some of them are amazing. So I'll do my best. This might be a little bit, just don't be scared now, just a little bit of a seminary class. Because there's a tremendous amount of history in here of, of what happened to the nation of Israel before it ever happened. And so buckle up, and uh, we'll look at this together, okay? Father, thank you for a chance to look in your word. We know that chapters like 49 are often maybe just glossed over, Lord, because they are a little bit tough to understand. We pray that you, by your spirit, would give us wisdom to grasp this, and we would see the ramifications of of sin and consequences and yet your sovereignty working in amongst all of that lord so father please use this passage to encourage us today we thank you for your word in jesus name amen well i want to get right into this Uh, so number one jacob's final words are not ordinary conversation jacob's final words are no ordinary conversation you may not have these on your final words but these are jacob's look at verse one and two with me there then jacob summoned his sons and said assemble yourselves that i may tell you what will befall you in the days to come gather together and hear O sons of jacob and listen to israel your father. Now, Jacob has summoned Joseph. You remember, was it last week? I can't no, we weren't here last week. We had a hurricane. Um, the week before, um, that he had summoned Joseph. And Joseph had come up from the city of On, where he would have still been ruling and reigning and doing all that he was doing. And he had made his way to the bed of Jacob. And doubtlessly, the rest of the boys were summoned as well um, at this time. But there was a unique blessing for uh, Joseph and his boys at this time. But this is at the end of Jacob's life. He is going to now breathe his last breath, and at the end of this breath, he has things to say. Now, it's possible some of the brothers were arriving and they were hearing the blessing of Jacob upon Joseph's sons, but in verse 1 and 2, he is now calling together these sons, these 12 men around his bed. His goal is to teach each one of them of the coming prophecies of their descendants, really. And what is going to become of the nation Israel? He strongly, if you notice in verse 2, he says, gather together and hear. These are strong words in the original language. Listen 
to Israel, your father. So he, he's urging them to listen to what he has to say. And again, this is no ordinary conversation. It has a poetic form to hit. It's, it's abounding in imagery, as you'll see as we go through this kind of line by line. The imagery is incredible as he speaks. Now, uh, uh, man, was he cognitive at, uh, at the end of his life. And, and I would say probably more than that, it is really the Spirit of God speaking through this man who's barely alive. He's going to pull his feet in at the end of the text and die. But one of the things that strikes you is the Spirit of God is speaking through him and at 147 years old, according to Genesis 47, 28, he is fully possessed with his faculties at the end of his life and the Spirit of God is going to talk about things that are coming that there's no way he can understand are out there. So God is speaking through Jacob here. His mind is functioning at a very high capacity and he recalls events throughout his life and I'm sure the sons were amazed at dad's recall and some of them probably weren't happy at what he was remembering because he's going to remember things that they probably wish he wouldn't as the brothers enter the room you can see this they doubtlessly maybe circle around the the bed of Jacob the Bible says his eyes were dim and his strength was fading it's pretty vivid there if you've ever been around the bed of someone who is passing from this life to the next you you can see this scene. But he recognizes each of his sons. And he proceeds to speak prophetic messages to each one of them. And the way it's laid out, it's fascinating. Um, one of the things you learn from this text is he's not going in order of the sons. He's going in the order of what's standing around him. So it's a, the scene is very, very clear here. This is God's providential, sovereign will for the nation of Israel as he unfolds this. Because it's God's sovereign will that neither death nor sinful behavior can stop the fulfillment of it. He has a plan for Israel, and he's going to tell them what's going to happen. Second thought, and this is where we'll spend most of our time as we work down through the boys, the prophecies of the 12 tribes of Israel. First, we come to Reuben. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water. And you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, Reuben, as we know, is the oldest. And most likely, as he came in, being the oldest, he probably took the place closest to Jacob. So if he was laying on a bed, you can imagine me. Maybe he's to his left. He's just sitting up on the bed, leaning on the, the bedpost, speaking to Reuben, who's possibly just to his left. Reuben had always desired his father's favor, but he forfeited that right. He forfeited that. But at one time, this pride and arrogance entered into his heart. And he desired to have that, but... But he could have had it if it wasn't for sin. And sin really destroyed that relationship between Jacob and Reuben, even though not too much is talked about it. But notice he calls him my might in the beginning of my strength. That is a common statement for firstborn. This is my strength. This one is equal in my power. We hear that similar when we think about God the Father and God the Son. There's a shared equality there. But unfortunately, Reuben had turned out to be weak, unstable, and full of lust. 
He committed adultery and incest against Bilhah, Rachel's maid, uh, handmaid, um, in chapter 35, verse 22. What's interesting about that count, at, at that time, there's really nothing recorded in the record that, that Jacob even responded to it. But he hadn't forgotten it. And it's remembered here. And consequently, Reuben's birthright had been withdrawn, and he would never have preeminence. None of his tribe would, would ever rise to power that would normally be attributed with the firstborn. Notice verse 4 calls him uncontrolled as water. Never try to control a powerful water. It's, it's relentless. Ever been caught in a wave or in a stream? It's relentless and it's out of control at times. And this is what he refers to his son. And that's someone who has a lust problem, who has a sexual desire that they can't control. And so he uses this term of him. But you remember, he's not only speaking about the boys, he's speaking about their descendants, what the tribe is going to be like. And so the result of this was the, the Reubenites, what they would call them, they never flourished as leaders in Israel. Never. The sexual sin of their father was passed down. And there was no repentance of those things. And so this tribe never flourished as leadership, which it should have been the firstborn. It should have been a a strong leader within Israel. In fact, the Reubenites, when they come into the land, decide to take land on the other side of the Jordan and did not want to wait to go across the Jordan to see what God has, and they settled for less. And they built their outpost on the other side of Jordan. During the years that followed with the wars with the Canaanites, Judges 5 reminds us that the tribe of Reuben failed to answer the call to come to war. They continued to show lack of leadership. And Reuben never excelled the Reubenites in anything. Next, uh, Jacob turns to Simeon and Levi, notice in verse 5 and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. The Bible says here in verse 5, their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel, Jacob says. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You say, well, that's not much of a blessing. Well, what about a warning? Could a warning be a blessing? I think when people have warned me in life as a young man, I think that's pretty much a blessing. Hey, son, (laughs) this would be really dumb if you do that. Wow, that's good to know that (laughs) before you drive off a cliff. Well, that's what some of this is going on here. Notice that these are the next oldest sons, Simeon and Levi. And as always, they seem to go together. When we studied them earlier, they were always together and they're always mentioned together. The scripture links these two, it's close companions. Where Reuben was weak and lustful and, 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 and just full of himself, Simeon and Levi displayed great anger and even cruelty. They lacked self-control and, and caused embarrassment to Jacob. And put the, remember, they put the whole family in danger as they slew the Shechemites because they had raped their sister. 
though they, they probably felt justified. You remember I was studying this. They felt justified or some kind of righteous retribution that they did uh, to, to go and do this. But, but Jacob here, as he, as he did back then, but even stronger here, he curses their cruel anger and their wrath. Notice he, he says, because of the destruction of both man and beast, lame, they hamstring their oxen and, and their livestock. They were, the Bible says in verse 7, they were to be dispersed in Jacob and scattered in Israel. Meaning, think about this. God would no, leather, no longer let them hang out together. Man, I, I looked at that this, I had never saw that before. I, I looked at that this week and I thought, wow, what... What a difficult thing. I, I love my brothers and I love hanging out with them. But their wickedness brought upon them and their descendants that they would be dispersed and they would not get to hang out together. Sin will do that. It will destroy relationships. Simeon was given an inheritance with the, cha- with the children of Judah. However, many of the Simeonites were uh, captured and they dwelt with Edomites and uh, Malachites. This is where they ended up hanging out with these people. First Chronicles chapter 4 tells us that. And when the kingdom was divided, the Simeites, re- some of them rejoined Judah, but most of them, when that happened, they got dispersed and it was very difficult to find them. They got pushed out and so they lost kind of their heritage and who they were. They didn't, they didn't really have something to call their own in a lot of ways and sin does that. It takes you away from your family. It takes you away from the things that you find great comfort in and enjoy. And when you track these guys down, they, they don't have that any longer. Most, uh, like most of the northern tribes, they were given over to idolatry, and little is ever heard about the Simeonites after King Asa. They're just gone. Sin had taken them away. As for Levi, now his descendants never inherited any land. Well, we know that because they were the priests, right? They were not given land. But we saw that at, when we first look at that, especially in Joshua, and they're dispensing the territories of land. We go, oh, well, they're the Levites. They're the priests. They don't get any land. Well, this verse starts to tell us that their sin was part of why they did not get land. We often don't see that until you study this text. Now, they were given cities scattered throughout the tribes. Joshua chapter 21 tells us that. But the Levites... Um, somewhat redeemed themselves more than the uh, Simeonites in that they took a stand against idolatry and they stood with Moses. And God, God honored that with the Levites. But as time went on, their rugged ventures, uh, uh, violence that they, they had at times, God exposed. Remember in Acts 30, uh, excuse me, um, Exodus 32, when Moses tells the Levites to go and slay those who were in sin, they could went a little crazy. In fact, Moses had to stop them. And some of that old Simeon Levite type of slaying came out of them. In fact, in time, we know that the Levites, uh, they themselves led the nation into idolatry. Moses was a from the tribe and there's some good things that come from the Levites but in the end the Levites most of them turned away from God and started offering sacrifices to false gods burning babies to Baal next we come to Judah 
Judah and Joseph are written the most in this passage and have uh, the longest verses attached to them. Notice verse 8 through 12. Let's read that. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to arouse him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal to a vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are full of, excuse me, are dull with wine and his teeth white with milk. Well, Jacob had a good prophecy. Jacob had, uh, Jacob had uh, little good in the prophecy of the first three sons, if you notice. But it's different when he comes to Judah. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. What we know about Judah in, chap- in Genesis is not good. It, most of what he was engaged in was wicked. But yet in this prophecy, everything is good in this. So we know there's a bigger picture here, isn't it? And I know many of your minds are turning. You're going, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus come from the line of Judah? And so you can start to see now what's going on in this prophecy. In fact, his very name meant praise. And he would become the object of his brother's praise. And I would say this, he has become the object of our praise. And he would become a leader among the tribes and he would defeat enemies. Jacob refers to him as a lion, the king of the beast, right? One whom the family would bow down to, he says here. And the dominion and the responsibility of the firstborn now seems to shift to Judah versus Reuben. He becomes the one who's given all authority. He's the one becoming given the rule, the staff, the scepter. Everything that would have seemed to have gone to Reuben now seems to go to Judah because it's pointing to something greater than this man here. Notice the tribe of Judah would be strong and courageous. And the land would be productive and fruitful. Just drop down to verse 11 and 12. I'll come back to 10 just in a minute. It says he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Well, you go, what does that mean? Have you ever tied a horse up to your best, uh, your best vineyard or your garden? <laughs> My horses would eat your garden. <laughs> but it's so fruitful, it's so blossoming that they can't keep up with it. It's an idea of saying, you know, you can't stop what God's producing in this tribe. I mean, it, it, it's an amazing statement. He goes on to say this and. Uh, verse 11, he washes his garments in wine. His robes in the blood of grapes. Boy, that's pointing towards something far greater. If you take your nice terry cloth robe you got from the Carlton Risk and go wash it in wine, it's probably not going to be white anymore. But not, not the imagery here. Blood is cleansing. And we see that picture of Jesus returning in Revelations and his garments are dipped in the blood of the saints. And I mean, there's so much imagery in here that's pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice they bathe themselves in the fruit of the vine and their land flows with milk. It, it, it's just a rich, rich place. These statements describe the land of good health and, and prosperity. 
And you think about this. Scripture shows that Judah does indeed become the leading tribe, but its greatest years, think about this, peak in King David's. In, in fact, not much comes from Judah till King David comes. Levi produces Moses. Ephraim produces Joshua and Samuel. Manasseh produces Gideon. Dan produces Salmon, uh, uh, Samson. Um, uh, Benjamin produces Saul. But there, there was really no way for Jacob to ever understood outside of the divine revelation exactly what was all going to come from Judah. And so it's pure inspiration. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. 640 years after this prophecy, King David comes. And from his kingdom will come one who will reign and rule forever. And so uh, this prophecy is way out there, right? When it's talking about Judah here. Way beyond what was going on there. And again, when you look at Judah's life within the book of Genesis, it's nothing but mostly bad stuff. Now, the most important aspect of Jacob's prophecy concerning Judah is found in verse 10. Look at this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The Bible says the scepter will never depart and what a key statement that is. Acts 13, as Paul was preaching uh, to those who were lifting David up and above everybody else, as uh, still people do to this day, he said, David's dead and we have his bones with us. There's one that lives beyond. And this is what this is speaking to. The scepter here is looking at something far greater than David or, or even the tribe of Judah. It's this time the scepter is... is used as speaking of someone who has the right to hold it and to hold it for eternity. First of all, this is the first time the word scepter, this, this term of true authority and true leadership is ever used. The, the Hebrew word has the idea of one who makes decrees. He decrees, he holds the scepter, he has the right to make the law, is the idea of the word. And notice that his scepter is between his feet, refers to his power and control. He has control of all things. He's he's there and he has it right between him. He holds it firmly. And he controls all that happens in this world and in this life. All this points to a coming Messiah who is the only one who can eternally reign and hold the scepter. Notice there's another word in verse 10 that's interesting. It's a word Shiloh. And what comes to mind when you think of Shiloh? Well, it was a place for the tabernacle, one of the few, few places it stayed for a little while. And it was there just outside of Bethel that the tabernacle was uh, put there. It's the same place where Jacob saw the pre-incarnate Christ ascending and, descend, uh, ascending and descending uh, on the ladder there. In, in, in Judges, we see that the tabernacle was set up there in Shiloh, but later Shiloh is wiped out. The Philistines come and take Shiloh. So the town itself is very insignificant. And it's interesting as you study this text, you go, well, why is it there until Shiloh comes? Certainly at this time, they wouldn't even know where Shiloh was. It wasn't a town. It wasn't anything, even on a map. But so it must be speaking of something greater. So think about this with me. Shiloh most likely represents the title or the name of a person. 
its root word comes uh, from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And so now we begin to understand that he's speaking of someone who can bring peace. And all the way from today's theologians back to the early church and even Messianic Jewish prophets all believed this was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking for the peacemaker, the one who could bring peace between God and man. And so this scepter would never leave this one referred to the man of peace, is what Jacob is speaking about. It seems clear that God through Moses would make known that through the promise set, the seed, somebody would come. You know that they were wrestling with Genesis 3.15. The promise had been given. This had been passed down to Abraham that that there was one who would rise that would crush the the head of the serpent. And, And down through the ages, Jacob was looking forward to a coming Savior, just as Abraham was, and Isaac, and all the way down that would crush this head. And so here now in this text, um, as, a, as Jacob is blessing his sons, the promise of Judah was that there was hope. There was one coming who could bring peace. And though it's written, um, we have to do some work to kind of get your mind around it. It is the promise of the Messiah in verse 10. And when the promised one would come, Only he could bring peace and the rest of all people and gather them to himself. He's the one, the son of uh, the virgin of Isaiah that he spoke of in in chapter 7, verse 14. He's the prince of peace of Isaiah chapter 9, 6. And this is the one who people will be obedient to in verse 10. Notice this. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. He's the only one who's going to bring everybody to their knee. You see, guys that are writing, and uh, uh, whether it's in the Psalms that goes on into the New Testament, and finally you get to the Apostle Paul, and he talks about every knee will bow and so forth. This is where they're getting this stuff from. They're studying their Old Testament, and they're going, this is the one where everyone will be obedient. So the psalmist says every knee will bow, and and of course Paul translates that and writes that again in Philippians chapter 2. This is the promise of the coming one. And this is the fulfillment of the messianic promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the seed, the seed that God told Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, this seed shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And here it is right here in Jacob. Just a little more, we could go on and on with this, but the New Testament clearly, clearly identifies Jesus Christ in this prophecy, right? Revelations 5, 5 says that Jesus is the lion, the tribe of Judah, Nowhere else is anybody called the lion, the tribe of Judah. It's always tribe to the descendant of Judah here. Even if you go back to Micah chapter 5, there it prophesies a Savior to be born in the Bethlehem of Judah. And one who would be great throughout all the ends of the earth and would bring peace. And that's what the angel is saying at his birth. This is the one who brings peace. So this, this verse, and again, I'm not doing it justice. We could spend hours upon just tearing this apart and, and supporting it all through the scriptures. But even in this one short verse, he's making these statements to Judah. It is everything pointing to a coming Messiah. And by faith, Jacob had believed that God would send one who would deliver. After the crucifixion of an ascension of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Titus came in and destroyed the temple, thus destroying all the records. Do you know that today a Jew cannot go back 
with any confidence at all and find what tribe they're from. Now, they'll tell you they can, but the truth is they can't. And they really know that. And isn't that interesting that this fulfillment of the tribe of Judah, the last one who can hold the scepter, there's no one else who can prove that they are the line of Judah, they're from David, that they're the promised one. There's no one who could ever come who can prove themselves to be that Messiah, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reminds us that God is in control of us, and here, Man, thousands of years ago, this promise of the Savior that we sing about today, who would go to the cross, who would be worthy to die and take our sin and shame upon him, and yet sit down at the right hand of the Father with a scepter between his, between his legs, ruling and reigning, and someday on this earth, ruling and reigning with an iron rod. That's our Lord Jesus. And here, Jacob, in his last breaths, Speaking of a coming Savior through the lineage of a man who shows nothing deserving of this. I find comfort in that. I find great comfort in that. How about Zebulun and Issachar? Verse 13 through 15. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall have a haven of ships and his flank shall be towards Sidon. And Issachar, a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. And when he saw that the resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens. And he became a slave at forced labor. That last statement gives you a little bit of what's going on here. But here in these verses, after speaking to Judah, Jacob turns to Leah's two sons. Right? They're, they're probably next in line as they've semicircled around the bed of Jacob. And they're probably standing next to Judah because they're not in uh, order, birth order here. But throughout the Genesis narrative, nothing's spoken about these two personal guys. Nothing is said personally about uh, Zebulun and Issachar. In fact, they're just lumped in with the description of the behavior of the sons of Joseph. Right? They, they together said, let's kill him. They together threw him in a pit. They together sold him to the Midian um, caravan to Egypt. They together went and lied to their dad. They together lied to Joseph and so forth. But they're never mentioned. They're always kind of lumped in here. So it's interesting. So what we learn about them and any characteristics we learn about them comes from this prophecy, any personal characteristics. The only thing mentioned of Zebulun in this prophecy is that he would dwell by the sea and he would have a haven of ships. Well, Joshua 19 verse 11 says that Zebulun's land would be up towards the sea. Now, some, as you study, you might have a map in your Bible that breaks down the different tribes and their territories. You know, it's a big map, and you can't quite, because it's very difficult to get the exact uh, places where these lines were at today. But Zebulun um, seems to be their territory from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 suggests that Capernaum, which is right on the shore, where we've been talking about where Jesus had most of his years of ministry, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, was the land of Zebulun. And, and so that you can see now in your mind's eye where that, that came all the way across. But, but they were known as seamen, both at the shores of Galilee and the shores of the Mediterranean. Interesting enough, the bulk of Christ's ministry took place here in these, in these borders. But they too succumbed to idolatry. These gifted shoremen, these gifted people that God uniquely called his own, burned their babies to Baal. 
bowed down to Ashtoreth and denounced the God of Israel. And though that doesn't say it in here, it doesn't hard to go and study that the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, go, to, go into slavery, go into captivity because of their worship of false gods. Jacob turns his attention to Issachar, and he calls him a strong donkey. Notice that in verse 14. It, the word in the Hebrew um, means, uh, as, the, as it unfolds, there's, there's some real strong language in here about it. It means he carries a double burden. So he's a strong donkey. He carries a double burden. If you've ever used pack horses or pack donkeys, you know, animals are just like people. Some are weak and whine a lot, and others are really strong. Um, not looking at anybody. Um, <laughs> some can carry their load. Some need a lot of water breaks. I mean, they're just the way they are, right? But here it, it, it really focuses in on that he, um, Issachar was strong. And because of his strength, though, in, in really sinful strength, he would have a double burden. The NSB says that he's lying down between the sheepfold in the next phrase there. Notice that. And the precise meaning is it's a little difficult to translate, but I read a lot on this, and, and most of the theologian, theologians believe that Issachar was strong, but he was docile and he was lazy. And it cost them. It cost that tribe dearly. The tribe would enjoy good land, as the text says, and that was assigned to them, but they would struggle to keep it. And eventually, Issachar was pressed into slavery, not just once, but twice. They, bear, they bore a double burden by many masters because they repeatedly fell to pagan nations. And Issachar had a rich land that Joshua gave them. It was lush crops, but they constantly fell to raiders and they were lazy. They did not take care of their borders. And then eventually they went to captivity to, to their neighbors and then they assumed and took on their gods and fell as well. The next four guys are lumped together, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Notice verse 16 through 21. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way and a horn snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that, the, so that his rider falls back. And then this phrase, very important, verse 18, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. I think that's going to help us understand that in a minute. Verse 19, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him, and he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. As for Naphtali, he is a doe let loose, and he gives beautiful words. Well, what does all that mean? Well, let me give a shot at this. This next four sons, they're all the sons of the handmaidens, right? This is when the, Rachel and Leah couldn't have children or, or Leah wasn't able to have any more. They gave handmaidens. These are the sons out of them. And notice they're not in chronological order either. But I think Jacob's dealing with them as they're standing there in line. Now again, none of these men are specifically mentioned within the Genesis narrative, but they're lumped in with the brothers again. And Jacob's prophecy gives an indication of their character as well. And it's possible that they, they were, there was maybe a major question going around whether the sons of the concubines were going to get territories. Well, this ends it because here Jacob says that they are one of the 12 sons. And so the Spirit of God led these prophecies and these men are part of the 12 tribes even though they're sons of the concubines. But notice in verse 16 and 18, here as we talk about Dan, Jacob says Dan would, in, would indeed judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. But 
but he describes Dan, and what's interesting as you look at this, he describes Dan as a venomous snake, right? A horn snake. Uh, you've seen maybe pictures of these vipers. They have little horns on, on them. They're a quick-striking snake. And it says they'll strike the heel of the horse of their enemy. In the tribe of Dan, though uh, they, were, they, they occupied, well, I know it was the smallest area. We believe it to be the smallest area given to the 12 tribes. They were a fierce, warring tribe. These dudes were tough. And they protected Israel's northern border. So you remember how God set the tribes up and he had them set up and so there were certain ones that were on borders. Dan controlled the north. And they were to protect that northern border. And so they were pretty tough guys. And some believe that the prophecy is merely just kind of talking about their tenacity, that they were tough and they could strike. But I think there's a little more to it because of that verse 18. That, that makes us think a little more about for your salvation I wait, O Lord. So here's what I think this is a reference to when it comes to striking the heel here. The Danites were one of the first tribes to introduce idolatry to the nation of Israel. Judges chapter 18, verse 30 through 31 tells us that they were the first ones to fall into the sin of idolatry. And also, Dan, through Jeroboam, or Jeroboam led out of Dan, they were the first to rebel and divide the kingdom. Remember, the sons of Solomon split the kingdom. Well, Jeroboam was associated with the tribe of Dan. And it is Dan that sets up the two golden calves and says, we'll worship here. We don't have to go down to Jerusalem. We don't have to go down to Judah. We'll worship here. And so bow down to these golden calves. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 12. And this is quite possibly why Dan is not listed among the tribes in Revelation chapter 7. Have you ever noticed that? In Revelation chapter 7, these tribes, are, all the tribes of Israel are listed, but Dan's not there. I don't know. I mean, I read a lot on this, trying to get my mind around this, and going back through old seminary notes and trying to go, wow, what, what's going on here? Well, I think God's not happy with Dan at all. And Dan certainly could represent or or was being used as the, the great serpent of old, possibly. Maybe that's what the striking the heel is. And Dan's idolatry was Satan's way of striking at the heel of a coming seed. Introducing idolatry to the nation, striking at that heel through idolatry. Because Dan gets, gets slayed in this. <laughs> and, and nothing in the end times do we see where Dan is mentioned in stuff. So, so it seems that maybe, possibly, that this idolatry uh, was against the nation of Israel. They led the nation into this. And this leads to the ultimate, uh, ultimately to their blindness and to the coming of a Messiah and, the, uh, and knowing them. So verse 18 says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. And, and this would be in reference to the coming Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And this also gives reference to Jacob's understanding that salvation would actually come to a person. And that this, this nation is now introduced to idolatry and there will have to be time and you have to wait for this Messiah to come. It's, it's an interesting thought. It's a tough one. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on that. But, but here, it was, another thing that helps me lead me to this direction is this word salvation. Yeshua. First time it's ever used in the Bible, salvation. Right here, it's the first time we find the word in, in all of the scriptures. It takes 49 chapters to get to the word salvation. But Yeshua, as you know, is also connected to the name of Jesus. 
So this becomes even more evident when we realize that this is the first time this is used and it's talking about, yes, Dan struck the heel, but there's, we're gonna wait and there's a Messiah coming and he's bringing it, but we have to wait for him to come to crush this head of the serpent. A lot of good guys hold to that view um, as we think about Dan. But again, as we see, Dan leads the nation into idolatry. Gad, verse 19 Interesting, says, as Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Well, Gad means troops in the Hebrew. And although raiding troops would uh, invade this tribe, Gad in turn would fight back. They were, they were great warriors as well, and they pressed the heels of their enemy. They fought uh, uh, devoutly um, against their enemies. Gad's territory was east of the Jordan, and, and it bordered the, the uh, Ammonites, um, and, and out towards all the desert, the east, where all these other small um, uh, ites of some, ty- of some type that would raid in there. And so Dan was always in a fight. But the Bible says that, um, that the Danites were, were, uh, they were always at the heels. Verse 19, but I, I chase this down a little bit to kind of, I, I go, I think these guys were part of the David's mighty men. Do you remember that in First Chronicles chapter 5? It's a really fun passage. Guys like to look at this. These guys, these 30 guys that are hanging with David. Well, a bunch of them are Gadites. And in First Chronicles 5 and 12 describes them this way. They called them Gadites, men of valor, trained in war who could handle the spear and the shield, had faces like lions and were swift as gazelles. So these dudes were covering the, the eastern border out there and fighting off enemies that were trying to thwart Israel. And some of David's mighty men were these. Though. But they too fell into idolatry and a wicked heart destroys the strongest body. When you, when you look and study the Gadites, as we have a little bit of information we do, they are warriors. They are strong, competitive, fast, fleet of foot men. And as I studied this, I said, Lord, it doesn't matter how great you are, how powerful you are, a wicked heart will destroy the strongest body. Does it every time. And that's what happened to Gad. Asher, verse 20. As for Asher, his food should be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Well, we have to have a cook somewhere in the crowd. And that's where Asher came in. He's Gad's brother. And Asher was to enjoy rich food and royal delicacies. Asher's territory was in the rich northern sea coast, just north of Mount Carmel up there, where Elijah did all that sacrifices and fought off the servants of Baal there. Um, and it included the cities of Ty and Zidon. We see that in Joshua chapter 19, where he gives them this portion of land and but, but Asher failed to take the possession over, over Ty and Zidon, uh, the region. They, they didn't do what God had told them to do. They were to go in and take that. Instead, they, didn't, they never took that. And it became a significant problem. In fact, what lived in that area is what later were called the Phoenicians. And everything we know about the Phoenicians is they loved ease. And idolatry was ripe in their culture. And so now you got some cooks who love to come and share, you know, dainty delicacies with you with a group of people who love to lay back and do anything, nothing. And you can see where this mixture goes. And instead of serving the Lord, they serve their appetite. 
and they went down. And the sons of Asher became worshipers of dead gods and turned their back on the God of Israel. Naphtali, verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Well, what does that mean? Well, Naphtali was the brother of Dan. Remember, they're probably standing in order. The two brothers are on the outside. The two middle brothers are on the inside there. And he's described as a doe let loose. If you've ever seen a doe get spooked or something, I mean, they can run fast. We see them around your, usually they run in front of your car on Highway 40. His descendants would be known as swift warriors. Again, we find these men hanging around David. Um, they're, they're quick. They're known for running. But in verse 21, he says he gives beautiful words. Well, this one wasn't interesting. I had to do some work on this one. Later, this tribe would be known for composing elegant speeches and beautiful literature came out of this tribe. These are gifted people. I hope you see, I know this is history and it's maybe not my normal stuff here, but to me, I look at this and go, look at all these gifted people. You've got cooks and warriors and um, people who can speak well and write well. and all, I mean, look at all these beautiful people who got their gifts from who? God. In the end, each one of them turn away. And that happens so often in our own culture. People who are greatly gifted by God begin to look at their own abilities and turn their back on God. And it just strikes you as you think about this. But, but just back to this beautiful words, where we see this as was, was the descendants of Barak. Remember him and Deborah fight. They go to war in, in Judges chapter 5. And at the end of the war, they write a beautiful melody, melody in, in, in Joshua chapter 5. Well, that's, that's the tribe of Naphtali. They are able to write that way, and they, and they um, wrote that, that song. comes from it. It's Judges chapter 5, verse 1 through 31, if you want to read it. They were known for their poetic ability, and yet these gifted people fell into idolatry and turned their back on God. Joseph is next, verse 22 through, through 26. Look at me. Joseph is a fruit, fruitful bough or branch, the fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the, lands of, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd and the stone of Israel. And from the God of our, your father who helped you and the and the almighty who blessed you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that lies beneath and blessings of the breast and of the womb your blessing the blessing of your father have surpassed the blessing of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers well finally we come to to Joseph and Benjamin, and doubtlessly they're standing next to each other. They loved each other dearly. And, and now we're down to Joseph, and Joseph's blessing is, is really comparable to Judah's, isn't it? Most of the other ones, is, there's problems there, but, but Joseph's is very comparative to Judah's. And Jacob uses very expressive speech here as he speaks about this, and he compares his favorite son, um, who was brought back from the dead, in a sense, as he said when, when they found out Joseph was alive, to a fruitful branch that drinks fresh water and over, climbs over walls. Can you see the beauty of that? Um, if, you, if you like to grow things and good vines, man, they'll just grow right up over it if they're in rich water and rich soil. 
Now, surely he's speaking of the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, those are the boys. So the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh make up the tribe of Joseph, right? And that would be a strong and numerous, and, and they would be overcomers. And so he's telling Joseph that your, your people are going to be strong. And they're going to they're be overcomers. They're going to climb over walls. They're going to they're be numerous. And he compares them to a man fighting against his enemies as archers and that try to destroy him. And, they, and yet, he says, notice in the text, it says his bow remained strong and steadier, right? And his, and his hands were made strong by the strength of his God who strengthened his father Jacob. And so certainly this description as applies to Joseph probably starts with Joseph that he triumphed over his brothers, right? His brothers came against him. His brothers were strong. They tried to take him down, but he remained strong. He remained steadfast and obeyed God and and he came through it. Um, but yet, it, we know that it's looking forward to this stronger descendant. But verse 24b, look at that with me. It says, um, from the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, the one who strengthens Joseph's hands as well as his tribe is said to be here in this text called the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, this is the first time the word shepherd's used in the Bible, or the stone, it can be translated the rock, too, there. And so it's, it's talking about how God strengthened Joseph. And that's not exactly what Joseph said. It's not God, it's not me who will give you the interpretations of these dreams. It's not me who will rescue this nation from certain disaster of a famine. It is the God I serve. And so here, even in this prophecy spoken of Joseph and his descendants, is speaking of the God who will shepherd them and bring this, be the strong foundation to them. Notice verse 25. He says, From the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blessed you, with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb. Jacob stresses that the God of Joseph is the God of Jacob. Joseph's following the same God that he's following. And he assures Joseph that God would bless him both from above and below. He would bless him in family and livestock. And then in verse 26, Jacob testifies that he would receive a greater blessing than his father's. Right? So Jacob says, I, I'm blessed more because, because I have more children. I have more descendants than Abraham and Isaac. But he says, listen, Joseph, you will be blessed more. Indeed, Ephraim, particularly Ephraim, is one of the largest of all of the tribes of Israel. When you, when you start to see numbers when they're gathering men who can go to war, Ephraim always has some of the largest numbers. And so Jacob's, Jacob's descendants are well blessed. They're fruitful in the land. But then Jacob speaks of the blessings of the eternal hills. He's looking beyond, right? He knows there's something better out there. In other words, Jacob is telling Joseph that all the blessings that he can experience will be showered upon him and his descendants. This is because of distinguishing, he is distinguished from his brothers. He was separated from his brothers. He was the one who obeyed God. Now, these prophecies were fulfilled later in Ephraim and in Manasseh, and I want to just touch on this for a moment. Leaders like Joshua and Deborah and Samuel and uh, Gideon and Jephthah, they all came from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Both tribes were strong in war. They both had fertile lands. Um, but Jeroboam came from the Ephraimites and then led a rebellion. But I want you to remember this. I think I said this a couple weeks ago. Often when you're reading the Bible, you'll say, they'll say it, is the, um, it, will, it will call Israel Ephraim. 
You'll see that. If you read Isaiah, particularly Jeremiah, some of the major prophets, often it refers to the ten northern tribes of Israel as Ephraim. That's the blessing of Joseph. They're, they're not the northern tribes, they're Ephraim. So God blessed Joseph by saying that you will affect all ten of those tribes. And so they're often equated with Joseph. And anytime you heard the word uh, Ephraim or Manasseh, that's Joseph's kids. Those are the offspring from him. And so uh, there's, there's great significance in that. And so when you think about this, um, Joseph's tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, they, they were blessed physically. When you study Ephraim and Manasseh, they were blessed physically. Great crops, great peoples, strong peoples, uh, held out the longest uh, to idolatry, a lot of those type of things. They were, they were blessed physically. When you study Judah, Judah's blessed spiritually. They're the ones who hold out longer, you know, 120 years longer before they fell into idolatry um, after the northern tribes. Now, quickly, because I'm way out of time here. Benjamin, verse 27 he is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Well, you go, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> what did Benjamin do? Um, isn't he like the second favorite son, and he's called a ravenous wolf here that would devour prey and divide spoil? It, it kind of seems a little strange when you study this, that this would be given to Jacob's other favorite son. However, its prophecy is, is more of a warning. And when we study the tribe of Benjamin, we, we, we see that they're very bold and they're very strong in warfare. But at the same time, they become very cruel and very vicious. And both attributes are later seen in the story of Judges 20. Boy, I don't have time to go there, but you know that strange story where man comes and he takes somebody's concubine and sleeps with her and then... The man says Israel didn't do anything about it, so he cuts her in pieces and sends her all over, and, and, and all of Israel gathers because of this terrible deed that was done, and they almost wipe out Benjamin completely. In fact, they have to give a, some women from another tribe to help sustain Benjamin to, to not be completely eliminated from the map. And, and so Benjamin has got some real problems, right? It, it's, it falls into some terrible, terrible sinful things. And then we also know, just in closing on Benjamin, that the 12, one of the tribes of, of Israel is Benjamin, and who comes from that? Who's the first king? Saul. And he was brutal. And, and when he chases David, he, has, he is ruthless. He slays priests. I mean, he's, he's just that way, and you can see what God is talking about. Uh, so he's not so much talking about little Benjamin here, which is probably not so little. Um, he's talking about their descendants. Another one, who else comes from Benjamin? New Testament, Apostle Paul. And before he got saved, you didn't want to run into him because he would take you and either have you killed or put you in jail. He was a tough customer. Then verse 28, he kind of sums up the 12. I just want to mention this real quickly. Verse 28, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is really the first comment of, of the 12 tribes of Israel here as he points them out. And so he is looking to the future here of what the descendants of this would be. I know that some of this doesn't sound like a blessing, but as I said earlier, the warning is a blessing. And, and, I, and, and again, we don't see this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. They stay in Egypt for 400 years. These men are long dead. 
and all of these atrocities that we've talked about come from the descendants of descendants and descendants down the road. And I pray these 12 men learn to walk with God the way their father did, the way Joseph did. Finally, there's a great faith in the promises of a faithful God. And in the end, um, I'm out of time, but you notice in verse 29, he charges them, just as he had charged Joseph, he says, don't leave me here, bury me in the promised land. Now, I don't know if it's important to you where you're going to be buried, but this is a statement of belief in God. He wanted his descendants, his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and on to know this isn't our home. We're passing through. God has something greater. And this is what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. They knew there was a greater kingdom that awaited them, but he knew that earthly land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, was where he wanted to be. And Joseph follows him, and when Joseph dies, as we'll see um, in Exodus chapter 1, he says, look, when I die, you take my bones straight to Canaan. Because that's where God is going that's the land God is going to give us. And so as this story unwinds, you see that where he tells them exactly where to take them. This is where Abraham and Sarah were buried. This is where Isaac and Rebekah were buried. This is where Leah was buried. Rachel was buried by Bethel on the way down to Canaan. Um, and he said, look, there's a cave there. It was purchased from the sons of Heth. And when, verse 33, notice this, when he finished charging his sons, and, and that word charging is real important. He's warning them of sin. He's warning them of what will happen if they don't correct their, their behavior, if they don't love God more than they love their sin. He warns him. He charges his son. And then this precious last few words, he drew his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so here, this one, this Jacob, who had a difficult life at times, but had faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac, he gives testimony to the future generations. He draws his feet in and he goes to rest with his father. And there's a great, there's a great comfort in this and, and more can be done on this, but he, he knew that God was going to crush that head of that serpent. He knew Judah was something special. He knew there was, there was a deliverer coming through Judah, someone who was going to hold the scepter, who was going to rule, who was going to set the record straight. He was going to take care of those things. And as he drew his feet in, he drew, he died at peace with God, is what, only what I think the text is telling us. And brothers and sisters, I pray when you pass away from this life to the next, I pray when you draw your feet in, you're right with God. You believe him. You believe that he's prepared something for you by name. He knew you from the foundations of the world. You're in his family. He's not going to leave you behind. There's great comfort in that because we don't know how we're going to die. We don't have that choice. But these patriarchs, they believe the word of God. And what comes out of them is remarkable stuff. And, and I scratched the surface on this. There's whole books written just on chapter 49 that a lot of Hebrew in them and really hard to read. But, the, and, but it's so important that you understand these men were seeing things that only God could show them of the future, but they believed them. And the world probably thinks we're crazy that we believe there's a heaven waiting for us and God's prepared a place for us. The world thinks we're nuts. And yet we, with full hearts, full assurance, know that God is coming back to get his children and he is preparing a place for us and, and he has a place for us and he's going to take us there and he will give us bodies like his and we will have no more dealings of sin and we will be like him and we will, we will glean from him daily truths and learn of his glory forever. 
And so I, I know this was a history lesson. It was maybe a little more boring. But at the end, I want you to grasp, this is God saying, I'm going to do this. You can trust me. And you may not see how this is all going to fill out in your lifetime, but I got it in control. Amen? Father, we've gone long. Thank you for your kindness and patience with us, Lord. We love you. Thank you that you have a plan for uh, your people, Lord. You will not leave us in the ground. You will not leave us to our own sin. You have come to rescue us. You've sent your son to pay for our sin, and you have a home for us. And so we look forward to being with you someday. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.